Well, welcome to part four of Outside the Lines. This is uh, part four of four, so the conclusion of a series. If this is uh, your first time to East Lake, we are so glad that you made it out today. You are coming in at the end of a series, um, so there's a few things we've been discussing. And the thing, the basic premise of the entire series has been that when we look at the life and the person of Jesus through uh, specifically uh, the, the gospel of Luke or, the, or Luke's version of the story of that, uh, we find a lot of times that Jesus operated outside the lines of kind of what was expected of him. Um, he hung out with people he wasn't supposed to hang out with. Um, he did healings for people who, in that culture, if you were sick, it was probably a result of something that you did, some sort of sin in your life. And so, but he just refused to like believe in that and operated outside the lines in that way. He talked to people he wasn't supposed to. He talked to a centurion who was like a, a Roman oppressor. And so therefore, kind of like a, uh, from a, a nationalistic standpoint, you're not supposed to hang out with that guy. He talked to a, a Samaritan woman at a well. She's a woman. There's gender inequality stuff there in that culture. Uh, there's the, the, the racial bias from Jews and Samaritans. Over and over and over again, he found himself dealing and talking with people he wasn't supposed to be around. He lived and loved outside the lines, and he invites us to do the same, which is great, because a lot of times, uh, for us, we feel like a little bit like outsiders sometimes, too. Um, we know, just based on the demographic of, of this church and the makeup, because uh, every year around September, we usually do kind of a, an, an informal survey, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Or if you come for the very first time, this week you're going to get an email that says, hey, thanks for checking us out. Would you be willing to take a first-timer survey, second-timer survey? And we have a lot of great responses to those things. And we get a little insights into who's a part of Eastlake. And what we found over the years is that for a lot of people, this is really the first church home that's not like they haven't been to church before. They have, but a church where it feels like it's home and like I, I kind of belong here. And, 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 and so we've often, a lot of times, apparently felt like outsiders in the world of Christianity. And especially when it comes to the area of politics, you've seen some Christians take positions on things. You're like, listen, that's Christianity. I, I mean, I'm out. Like, I don't know. That, that's not me. So therefore, I'm kind of, uh, I'm an outsider in that way. Uh, or, or whatever, so, those are, so that can be some of our experiences. And even coming here, like occasionally I'll use the word we, like unintentionally, but I'll say something like, here's something that we all know, right? And you're like, whoa, 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 careful with the inclusive we term, okay? That's a pronoun. Just because I'm here and you haven't scared me off yet doesn't mean I'm part of you, you know what I mean? So if that's you, totally get it, totally understand. That's my fault for including you in, uh, informally in, in that way. But uh, we've all felt a little bit like outsiders, and what we have, if you're, but if you're a Christian, here's what we figured out. You and I are invited um, to live and to love outside the lines of Christianity. And so we said, what, can we look at some of these stories, can we look at some of these particulars and learn what, it would, what uh, makes it more effective, learn what we have to do, or learn some of the expectations, or at least get better at this, because it's not really natural for us to do that. Typically, we gravitate towards insiders, we gravitate towards people who are like us, uh, and Jesus operated so differently than that. So that's what the series has been about. There's a website you can go to, eastlaketricities.com slash talks. Uh, the first three talk, parts of the series are on there, as well as this one will be after uh, Tuesday or so. So, all right, I wanna read our text for today um, and then show you what kind of a challenge we're up against in terms of relating this to our everyday life in 2018, okay? Because uh, there are some verses of the Bible that are like super applicable. As soon as you read it, you're like, all right, I know what I need to do. I know what I need to do. There are some verses that are so ambiguous that you're like, that feels like cool for them, but I don't know what I, you know, I don't know how, I don't know what that means for me today. This kind of may, might fall into one of those categories, and I hope that we can look at it from a different angle and maybe learn something more about it. It deals with uh, Jesus and not a Samaritan person this time, but an actual specific town. Um, so it shows up in Luke chapter 9. I'm going to read the text for us, and then we'll go here, right? 
Uh, it's going to be on the screens, as well as if you text the word notes to 97,000 on your phone, you can get all this stuff on your phone, because there's going to be two or three quotes today that are kind of long. There's no way you'll be able to write, and write them down in time. If you want them to be able to look, them, uh, look them into them further later, you can do that. All right. Here's what it says. Uh, when the days drew near for him, Jesus, to be taken up, uh, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans. Here's our outsiders to make preparations for him. But the people, these Samaritans, did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. End of story, on to the next story. If you were reading that home, you'd be like, that's crazy. Next, I don't even know what I'm supposed to do with that. My goal today is for us to look at this and be like, all right, I kind of have a glimpse of what I'm supposed to do with this in terms of living and loving outside the lines. So that's, that's where I'm against. So uh, to get there, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever thought you were right about something? And then as it turns out, evidence is presented to prove that you were wrong. Something you were pretty convinced of and then something surfaces and it becomes very, very obvious to you and all the people around you that you were not right. In fact, that's the words you use. Oh, I'm not entirely right. When the actual, the words when they say it to you is, you were wrong. Well, I wasn't entirely right, right? We play these games, these mind games. Um, so that's my question, um, which a better question might be this. When was the last time, not if this has ever happened, right? When was the last time you were pretty convinced that something was this, and it actually was B. And an even better question than this is, who in your life will never let you forget the time when you thought it was this, but it turned out to be this? Because we all have friends like that. Some of us are married to people like that or are dating people like that, where they just won't let you forget. Remember the time that you got this wrong. Here's how it works out in our home. Uh, in, in a very, very similar thing, okay? Because there's different levels of this, right? Early on level is, I think this, but like I'm not gonna be mad if I'm wrong. Like I just have an opinion on this. So in our home, this plays out in the area of like misinterpreted song lyrics, okay? I'm not that great with song lyrics. And so I will be doing something very nice for my family, changing diapers, cleaning something, uh, fixing something, making coffee, and then out of nowhere, I'll have like this song that's stuck in my head and I'll say something. And it doesn't matter where in the house my wife is located, all of a sudden she'll poke her head around the corner and be like, what'd you just say? What do you think? This How do you think that song goes? And I'm so nervous at that point. I'm like, oh, I, don't, I have no idea. I don't, I, I, here's my take on it, right? It's like, so I'll be like, rocket man burning the smell of cheap cologne. I mean, I have no idea. I don't know. And she'd be like, that's not it. And I'd be like, well, what is it? And she's like, I don't know, but that's not it, right? <laughs> and I'm like, fine, whatever. I don't even care. Like in that area, like so, whatever. If I, I can be wrong and live with it and be totally fine with it, right? But then there's like this gradual increase. There are, then, there, then there comes categories where I'm pretty sure I'm right about something. And I'm willing to kind of argue about it. So I remember watching a thing. And this was like a, like a week ago. I remember watching a uh, side-by-side comparison 
of Aaron Judge, who is a, an outfielder for the New York Yankees, and just a giant of a man, you guys. He steps in the batter's box and dwarfs everybody else. And I, 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 I like, remember um, somebody at some point watching some show where they did a side-by-side side side comparison uh, between him and LeBron James and, like, the difference between the two because everybody thinks, you know, you watch the NBA Finals, maybe, of some of you, uh, and you see LeBron, and he's, you know, he's wearing the short the suit short things to the pregame thing. And he, he looks good. I don't know how he pulled that off. But anyways, he, he just is like, he's built, he's chiseled. And, and you just think, oh my gosh, so cut. And I remember watching this and going, oh my gosh, Aaron Judge dwarfs LeBron James. So I'm watching this with a buddy. And I said, did you know that Aaron, because we were watching the NBA finals, did you know that Aaron Judge makes him look like a man among boys. Did you know that he makes him look like a JV, makes LeBron James look like tiny? He is taller and thicker, like no question, right? And the guy's like, eh, I don't think that's right. And I'm like, it is, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm, I promise you. And he's like, eh, I mean, I don't know. And I'm like, I, I, I promise you. So he does what some of you are doing right now. He pulls out his phone <laughs> and begins to Google LeBron James, you know, versus Aaron Judge. And he goes, well, according to Google, I mean, I'm no expert, but according to Google, Aaron Judge is an inch shorter. Aaron Judge is 6'7". LeBron James is 6'8". Aaron Judge weighs 282 pounds. LeBron James weighs 250, right? So 32 pounds heavier. By the way, all muscle. I have not felt it, but I'm pretty sure all muscle (laughs) by the way that I've seen it. All muscle. So in a sense, I was kind of right, but I was also kind of wrong. But I was 100% defensive and 100% like, I'm sure that I'm right. He gave me several opportunities prior to checking to kind of back my statements up, and I stood firm with what I believed. Does that make sense? We've been there before. I know I'm right. Well, I mean, this says you're kind of wrong. It also says I'm kind of right. He's 32 pounds thicker. Yeah, he's also an inch short. I mean, you know what I'm saying? So there's a sense in which... This is stupid, it's trivial, but we can kind of get like really tensed up and be like, no, I know this is right. My memory is 100% crystal clear on this side-by-side comparison. I, I get it, and, and then we just kind of get it wrong. There, there are all kinds of things in our, in our memory banks. We're pretty sure that this happened. And then our spouse or significant other goes, well, I mean, kind of. you got part of the story right. You got a lot of the story right, but there's a little bit. And you're like, no, 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 no. Trust me, I got this. I'm totally good on this, right? We're so convinced we're right, and then until the facts are proven. Now, the question then become: how do we know that Google got it right, right? That, then if you really want to dig down and get philosophical about this thing, what if Google, or what if somebody hacked into Google and changed the height of Aaron Judge from 6'10", which I thought he was, to down to 6'7", right? That would be a huge, a huge thing. What if, what, if, what if that was all wrong? What if you ask the basic questions? What if everybody got it wrong? So I'm reading this book right now called But What If We Got It Wrong by a guy named Chuck Klosterman. He's a fantastic writer, author. If you need a good beach read, that book is fantastic. And, it's, and, and the beginning of the book says, what if there are some areas in our life where we've got something completely wrong about what if it's been assumed that we, you know, we all, we all it, it feels childish to even question it, but actually we may be wrong on that. And he brings up this idea 
of gravity. We're going to talk about gravity this morning. Here's the thing about gravity, right? You learn the basics of gravity. You've experienced it, but then also you took a physics class in like high school, and they kind of explained to you about when you drop things, they gravitate towards the earth because there's a central, you know, gravitational pull towards this, that it goes faster as it goes down, and it eventually, uh, until it collides with something that's hard. Now, here's the deal. I'm all in on gravity, okay? I continue to be all in on gravity, right? I know, uh, and I will continue to be all in on gravity until the day that I die. And if you throw my dead corpse out of a window, I believe that my dead corpse will fall at a rate of 9.8 meters per second, which doubles every second that it's in the air. I really do think that that's true, okay? Now, the reason I think that that's true is because oh, I remember in, in class with Isaac Newton, he dropped this apocryphal apple from an apocryphal tree. Those things didn't actually occur or whatever. Anyways, but all of the mathematics work out to be in that way. Now, it wasn't always, as you can imagine, it wasn't always believed in, in gravity in that way that we haven't always believed the same things about gravity that we do today. Prior to Isaac Newton's thing, the reason his, his uh, take was so ingenious is because prior to that, Aristotle wrote a book on physics back pre-Jesus. This was 2,000 years prior to Isaac Newton wrote a book on physics where he said that every natural object wants its natural place at the geometric center of the universe, which is Earth. The sun revolves around us. The whole world revolves. As from our limited perspective, everything revolves around us. So there's something. It's not a, it's not a gravitational pull. It's a, it, this is the natural spot. It wants to come down to where it naturally resides. That was, the world got it wrong for 20 decades, or 20, yeah, uh, for 2,000 years. What is that? 20 centuries, right? I almost said decades, but it's longer than that. For, for 20 centuries, we got it wrong. And then all of a sudden, somebody comes on the scene and goes, let me challenge that base assumption. What if we all got it wrong for 20 centuries? Unbelievable. But then this thing gets produced, and we know Isaac Newton, we know the gravity thing, and, we, we, and now we have 9.8 meters per second and doubles every second. We get it. We, we, we're like on board with all of that. Until a guy named Brian Greene comes along, who's a, who's a theoretical physicist at Columbia University, and he writes this, and this is I'm reading the quotation from the book that you can pick up, what if you're wrong, all right? Here's what it says. There is a very, very good chance that our understanding of gravity will not be the same in 500 years. In fact, that's the one arena where I would think that most of our contemporary evidence is circumstantial and that the way we think about gravity will be very different. For 200 years, Newton had gravity down. There was almost no change in our thinking until about 1907. Then he goes on, he says... Uh, and then from 1907 to 1915, Einstein radically changes our understanding of gravity. No longer is gravity just a force, but a warping of space and time. And now we realize quantum mechanics must have an impact on how we describe gravity within very short distances. And then string theory comes along. You've heard of string theory before. That just basically means we don't know what's going on, you guys. There's something happening in this world. It's here, but then it's also here at the same time. It's crazy. Warping of space-time continuum. I do think that gravity is the least stable of our ideas and the most ripe for a major shift. You know what I mean? Like, it feels so safe. Do you believe in gravity? Yes, you should believe in gravity. Do we understand all of the things about it? No, we feel like 9.8, but what about, what about, what about? It just feels like so safe. It feels like one of those things. And that's the thing about it. Listen, when it comes to kind of circumstantial topics, if you ask any smart person like this Brian Greene guy or any of these scientists who work out at this PNL lab, I mean, some of these people are doing this stuff at the LIGO thing that's out there, the big arms. Anyways, you ask some of them, do you think that there are specific areas where we as a society... And as a scientific community, ha are holding some beliefs that aren't exactly true. I think all of them, out of their humility, would say, probably, there's probably something that we got wrong. 
And then if you went specifically down, well, do you think we got this wrong? They'd be like, well, no. Do you think we got this wrong? Well, no. I mean, no, there's, there's no way. We can't begin to identify which one we got wrong, but we're smart enough to realize that even though we've progressed, like there's a natural thing in our society, as it's been true for human society forever, that the, the stage of revelation that we've got to now, that, that we've solved a bunch of things. That we, there's no more reason to question some of these things. And it's just, it's weird how this works. We understand that, that there's a humility that comes with saying, this is the best thing we have to go off of, though we may be wrong. Instead of saying, this is it, no questions asked, don't question, it's fine. There's a humility that comes with that. So what if we're wrong indeed? I wanna go back to this story because I think this comes into this, this, this thing that we just read in Luke. There's an element of that that shows up in the story that I think really makes the impact and provides us with some handles for what to do as a result of this. All right, verse 51, chapter nine, verse 51, which by the way, you should know, um, is kind of a categorical shift for the story that Luke is presenting. He writes uh, in, in different ways, in different pathways. So he's, he, at the very beginning, there's the birth narrative with the shepherds and, and uh, all of that. Uh, and then it goes into kind of like the recruiting phase where he recruits his disciples. And then in 951, uh, right here, there's not a chapter shift, but there is just a definite shift. It's like, it, it's like he writes about how Jesus shifts his way towards understanding, I've got to go to Jerusalem. This is the end. I know what I came for. And everything from this point forward is about his journey towards being crucified and, and rising again. So that's a big shift. It's called the travel narrative, if you look at uh, kind of commentaries on this stuff. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, set his face. He's using imagery language here. It shows up a couple other times in scriptures. It's, it's basically an illustration of, have you ever decided to make a significant change in your life and you set your face towards it? Or a new realization comes in or new information that changes the trajectory of your life. If you've ever walked out of a doctor's appointment and the doctor's like, you gotta, you know, if you don't change some dietary and exercise things, I only have bad news for you, right? So then you go home and what do you do? You set your face towards healthy living. You, you take all the things out of the cupboards that you, don't, you know you shouldn't be eating uh, and you begin to sit down with your schedule and you begin to type, you know, put it forward. Here's what we're gonna do as a result and instead of it. This is, this is the, the, it's a visual, like, and, and people see it in you too. They're like, something's different about you this time. Something, something's changed. Like you have more dedication this way. You set your, your, your face towards this. I was thinking about this um, this week, and, and my, another way to illustrate it, possibly in the area of movies, is you remember that part in The Matrix where Neo figures out, like, I can control bullets, and then it's all over, game over after that, right? You're like, Matrix, what movie is that? I'm old. You have to understand. I'm a little older than some of you, but really crazy good movie back when I was in college. So anyways, this is the moment where he, like, he goes, oh, like, I don't need to, like, dodge bullets anymore. Like, like come at me. You know what I mean? Like, I'm setting my face towards something new. That's what's taking place here. He's setting his face towards Jerusalem. Then he goes on. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Basically, my Expedia app's not working. So would you go and let him know we need a place to stay, we need a place to eat. Uh, we, we want to check in on the hospitality of it. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now, uh, a week ago, we read about or listened uh, and, and learned about the Samaritan woman, and she introduced us to some of the politics surrounding uh, the racism that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. Um, the Samaritans were a group of people who their ancestors had kind of uh, 
not listened to the whole don't intermarry with other nations and had uh, intermarried their families uh, outside. And so they were kind of considered half-Jews or half-breeds. It was, and, and you couldn't, because of that, you could come to certain parts of the temple, but you weren't allowed full access. There was a definite like, oh, you're down here, right? We're up here, you're down here in terms of Jews and their relationships with the Samaritans. They had their own mountaintops. Like, okay, well, if you're not gonna allow us to worship at Mount Zion, we're gonna create this own mountaintop and this is gonna be our holy spot. So they're, they're antagonistic towards Jews because they've been treated in a, lesser, in a lesser way and there's definitely some nasty stuff going on in this way. And it says here, the people didn't receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Word has it, or they could see it in his eyes, or they, could, they knew it from the disciples' story. We're on our way to Jerusalem where all of this stuff's gonna kind of culminate. And they didn't know like, that he was gonna die. I mean, the disciples at this point are still trying to figure out who he is and what he's all about. But in this moment, they say, we're going to Jerusalem. We're on our way there. That's where all the magic happens. That's where the central action is. It's almost as if these Samaritans are thinking to themselves, all right, listen, if Jerusalem's where it all happens, then we already know where you stand in terms of us. In terms of, uh, in terms of what you believe about us, you don't have to tell us that you're against us. We get it. When you prioritize Jerusalem in that way, the, the writing's on the wall for us, we understand it. So that, so we're trying to, un- my goal is to help us understand what makes sense in terms of the activity as, as it's described to us. And if that's the backdrop and if that's the context, then their response begin to make sense for us. Now here's where, it may not make as much sense for us. Um, he goes on. And when the disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Which seems like a bit of an overreaction, right? <laughs> You're trying to figure out, like, where is this coming from? This feels like, should you know, like, because previously he sent out his disciple and he said, hey, if people reject you, then shake the dust off your sandals and then go in the other direction. We'll, we'll move on. It's fine. It's, it's no big deal. But all of a sudden they take it to this massive extreme. Listen, my wife and I, when we go out to eat somewhere, uh, when she orders a salad, she likes her dressing on the side. She always asks for it on the side so she can, you know, she doesn't want it slathered and smothered in dressing. I like it smothered. It doesn't matter. Whatever. We're different in that way. She asks for it always explicitly. Can, you know, could you, I'd like this, can you put the dressing on the side? Now, when we're out to dinner and the server brings over the food and drops it off and then leaves and the dressing's on the salad, I can see in her eyes that she's disappointed, okay? Now, I have a couple options in this moment, right? Um, the option that I typically choose is because I'm a nine on the Enneagram, I'm a peacemaker, I don't like conflict, I hate conflict, I act as if nothing happened and I just start eating my food and talking about something else, <laughs> because I don't want her to call the server over and be like, hey, um, excuse me, if you could just, you know what I mean? Like, I'm just like, just, ooh, just eat it, I don't care. Like, I never, I have never sent food back to the kitchen. I'll be like, nah, it's whatever, it's not good. We're not coming back here again. I, I, I can passive aggressively be against this place, but I would never raise a stink in the restaurant. That's me, okay? Right or wrong, it doesn't matter. If I'm being, if I'm trying to look out for the, like, if I'm trying to be a good husband in this way and a good partner in life, there is a small inclination for me to be like, babe, do you want me to call the server over? Like, I'm hoping you say no, but I'm willing to do this because I love you so much. Not that she couldn't do it for herself. She's a very independent woman. She could make that happen. She's nicer than me, right? So she'll just go through with it. But if I'm being really, if I'm trying to be really nice, I'm like, do you want me to call the server over? Here's what I have never done. Do you want me to pray that fire would come down and burn this restaurant? <laughs> I've never done that. 
Uh, that feels odd, right? So I'm just, I was, I was reading this, this text this week, and I, I imagined you at home, right? And you have, uh, you've gone, you've been coming to church, and you're, you're like, okay, I'm like, I'm going to try this Christianity thing. I'm going to try reading my Bible every day, right? And, and you didn't go to school for it, and your life's busy, and you're trying to figure out, you know, summer camp with the kids, and, you know, getting the boat ready, and all this, you got so much stuff, you're busy. Like, life is busy for you. And you're like, you know what, but you know what, God, I'm so committed, I'm going to sit down and read your Bible once in a while, Right? As often as I get the occasion to do. So once a month, I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to pull out my phone. And then I imagined you getting to this verse and reading this response from these disciples and going, see, this is why I don't read my Bible. (laughs) Brent, I just want you to explain to me this, because this doesn't make any sense to me. Why would you say this? Why are you so angry calling down fire from heaven because... They said, we don't have a place for you. Listen, I get that there's like the racism stuff, and, but you, you, we'll figure it out, man. This is something we've been dealing with forever. Anyways, what's going on here? There's gotta be something more, and I think that there is. Here's what you need to know. So there's a story about Elijah. There's a prophet named Elijah in Jewish tradition, right? He shows up in the Hebrew scriptures, by the way, which all of these disciples would have known. Um, Standard operating procedure for a Jewish kid growing up was to have the entire Pentateuch memorized by the age of about 12 or 13. And then they either went into trade school to become fishermen or carpenters or whatever, or they went on to become rabbis. As they went older, they would have the entire Old Testament memorized. But all of them at some point would have most of like the main characters of the Old Testament memorized, right? It's their nationalistic heritage. This is who we are. This is our story. They know all of the stuff. In the same way that if you've been coming to East Lake for a while or, or you grew up in church, most of the time when I say, hey, we're going to be talking about Jonah and, you know, the whale, you automatically go three days, three nights, got eat it. You know, some of you are like so on board with the story, you know the ending before I get there. None of you, uh, like you're sitting there going, I wonder what happens next, right? You're asking, I wonder where he's going to take this. That's, that's, that's the question that, that you have. So in this, in this story, there's something that they are pulling from, some sort of a memory that they're using. And it has to do with the, the prophet Elijah. In 2 Kings, um, we read about the end of the story of Elijah. First Kings talks about this major prophet, Elijah, who was like a defender of the nation of Israel. Israel is in competition with all of these different other pagan gods, specifically Baal and, and uh, some other things that are going on in this thing. And it's, and it's very, uh, very warlike almost. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of um, killing that's going on and anger. And it just feels like us versus them in a big time way, okay? And when there's disagreements, there's like God's gonna do kind of crazy stuff. So in, in 2 Kings chapter one, there's a king who falls down off a, off a ladder and is, is dying. He's, he's supposed to be a, a, an Israelite king. And he wants to figure out if he's gonna survive this, this injury. So he commands his guys, his captains, his um, uh, soldiers, to go and ask these priests of this other religion, am I gonna survive this fall, right? It's like this omen type thing. It's a weird story. They go out, they run into Elijah, who then asks them, what are they doing? Our king fell down. He's trying to figure out if he's going to survive. And Elijah says, well, let me send you back with the story. It ain't good. You're going to die. You know, and it's, it's bad. So they go back and they're like, we ran into somebody. His name is Elijah. Uh, and he's a major prophet, and, uh, or he's a prophet. And um, he said, it's not good news for you. And, and he's like, oh, will you go tell him to come talk to me and tell me that to my face? So, so essentially he sends these guys out. Go get him and bring him back. They approach Elijah on this mountaintop, it says, and they said, come down, the king wants to talk to you. 
And here's the response in, uh, here's, here's how the story goes, okay? Now, is this an odd story? Absolutely. I'm just telling you, here's what they grew up hearing about from when they went to church, okay? First, Second Kings uh, chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. Then the king sent, him, sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50. They went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, If I have a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them and his 50. So there's conflict. It feels like a war between us and them. Who's got you know, the bigger God? Who's got the stronger God? And in this story... Elijah is able to call down fire from heaven, and then it comes down and consumes all of the men. That's what's in the back of their minds of the disciples as they approach the Samaritan town, and they feel like it's a, it's a conflict between our God and their God or their system or their way of doing religion, okay? So Jesus, here's your chance to be like really cool like Elijah. You could be like Elijah 2.0. This is, what the, this, is the, this is what they're asking of him. And it's, it's almost like they don't really care about like actual destruction or even think that this is how it would take place. But do something that really shows that you are a man sent from God. Now, here's the thing about it. They, and I really believe this, their perception of Jesus is limited we know you're something special. We know Elijah was something special. Perhaps you're like Elijah. I don't think in this moment, if you had asked them, do you think that Jesus is Jesus the way that we perceive Jesus, right? Or I say we, look at me, the inclusive we again. Um, that way that Christians uh, believe in Jesus as son of God, God incarnate, Jesus, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Trinity type stuff. Their perception of him is far more limited and it's revealed right here. Why don't you do something to prove how cool you are, that you're like super special? We don't know exactly what you are. In fact, there's another uh, time in the book of Matthew where he brings all of the disciples on a mountaintop, and he asked Peter specifically, um, so what are people saying about me? Who do people say that I am? Uh, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah, prophet, prophet, prophet. Some people say that you are the next thing, which is a significant deal because um, the whole idea of the activity of the prophets has been really quiet, right? The Old Testament, the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament is 400 years. It's called intertestamental period. For 400 years, there's basically silence. We have all of this activity, God leading us through the Exodus, God sending us into the promised land, all of these prophets, God says this, God says this, very visual things about his presence in this moment, and then quiet for 400 years. 400 years is a long time, guys. Almost twice as long as America's been in existence. There's no activity, and then all of a sudden, they're thinking, ho, 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 Yahweh God is starting something back up again through this person named Jesus, Elijah 2.0. Their perception of Jesus is positive, but it's not complete, and it's not fully accurate. It's a little bit wrong. And they're giving him a chance. So they're, they're trying to prove this to him. And they're like, they got it wrong. Do something to correct them. It's almost as if I really do think Jesus is looking at them going, you got it wrong. You don't even understand who I am. You want me to punish them, but you don't even have it right. How funny is it that when we are super convinced that we're right about something, 
we resort to a form of violence for people who disagree, especially when we get really passionate and are ultra convicted about what we know is right and what they, and, and it's different from them and they're just as convicted. And we kind of wish a little bit of violence, not fire from heaven, but like a flat tire or so, you know, or a, a ticket on the way home or something like that. We're like, you know, it's a sort of karma-ish. When you act like a jerk, you get treated like a jerk. That's how we, that's how we handle disagreements or uh, in areas that we don't agree, which we are fully convinced that we are. And Jesus in this moment reveals a little bit of grace, not only to the Samaritans for whatever, he, but primarily to these two specific disciples who, by the way, James and John, these are the same ones that when, there's, when there was 12 disciples, they pulled Jesus aside and they said, we know you're like gonna become some, somebody super powerful because uh, like nobody can deny what you're doing. This is really cool. When you come into your power, would you make us on the right and the left-hand side of you, right? Like while the other 10 are behind him with an earshot going, hey, freaking jerks, we're here too. What's up with this? Why do you think you're so special? We already know that they're a little bit aggressive about some things and not fully there. And this is just one more example of this. Do you want us to pray fire down? And it says for them, like, like we could do this, right? I mean, there's so much going on here. There's so much going on in this way. They're so convinced that they're right. And Jesus is like, Why, if, if, you want, if you expect me to punish people who are wrong, you're wrong. You don't even have it all together yourself. Here's, here's what this is so important for us. Which, by the way, the next verse is, then he rebukes the disciples. He doesn't, like, let it slide. He doesn't say, easy, fellas. You know what I mean? He's like, no, you guys are absolutely wrong. And there's, in, in your Bible or in some Bibles, there's, like, a little asterisk, uh, and there's a little, like, quote that's on the bottom of it, and it'll say something like this. Some manuscripts add, and then there's a phrase that probably wasn't in some of the earliest documents, but over time, it gets added. So it's kind of extra biblical. Luke probably didn't write it. Whoever wrote Luke didn't write it, but it kind of came in existence. And here's what it says. You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man came not to destroy people's lives, but to save them. In other words, you're coming at this from a form of violence towards people who disagree with you. That's not the spirit of what I'm about at all. There's no violence here. Previously, I taught you shake the dust off your feet and move on to the next town. If people don't agree with you, that's fine. You can hold directly you know, firm with your convictions. But you also, you gotta also understand there's probably areas of your life where you get it wrong too. So be careful to be really active against those who you think are wrong. They're so wrong. Let's do something about it. Listen, so we have been invited to love and live outside the lines. May we, I'll just, again, I'm using the, may I, may I be the type of person who does not fall into the natural rhythm of resorting to violence towards people who disagree with me because there's probably some area in my life that I've got it wrong too. May I operate with the grace that has been extended to me. May I become more aware of my shortcomings and my lack of knowledge in a certain area. Because I think that that's part of the invitation to live and to love outside the lines. All right, at this time, we're gonna receive communion together. I'm gonna invite uh, some of the uh, 
communion teams to come on down. Our band's going to come back up. They're going to lead us in one last song. Um, and communion has always been a time for us as a church. At the conclusion of every series, we receive communion together um, to remind ourselves that no matter what we talk about, like it all comes down to this incredible statement of love that we never have to live the, the ambiguity of does God even love me or does he exist or whatever. We, we celebrate the fact that he, he sent his son to die on a cross for us. So we know that, he's, that he can point always back to that and be like, of course I love you. Of course I love you. So um, for the centuries that the church has existed, um, it has done two things over and over and over again. Baptism, communion, baptism, communion, baptism, communion. Every once in a while, we'll do a baptism on Sunday mornings, and then the conclusion of every series, we do communion together. So there's going to be three stations. Uh, you're going to be invited, not expected or whatever. You can totally take this at your own pace. Uh, to come forward and participate, there's going to be two stations on the side that have um, bread and wine. On the center station is gluten-free bread and juice. So pick whichever one is your dietary age restrictions. Um, and uh, during the song, you can uh, participate in that and then head back to your seat. I'll come up and do a formal kind of dismissal at the end. Uh, if you're like, if it makes you feel awkward to participate or do any of that, then obviously you're no obligation there. You can just uh, stay in your seat, reflect on some of these things, or, or, or how do I take this and apply this to my own life or my own personal behavior? Or do, do I resort to violence? Am I quick to resort to violence um, when it comes to people who disagree with me? And what do I have to learn uh, from that way. So would you stand? I'm going to close this in prayer, and then uh, we'll receive communion, and then I'll be up at the end to do kind of a formal thing at the end. All right. Father, we ask uh, for not only grace in the area of our life where we get it wrong, because for sure there's some there. <laughs> it's not a, a question of if, but a question of uh, when. And we thank you for... Um, your personal grace towards us in this area. May we be the type of people, if we are going to love and live outside the lines well, then we need to follow in the footsteps that you have laid out for us. Give us the wisdom to know what that looks like in our individual life and the ability on a corporate level as a church and together as a community to live this out in the way that we do all the things that we do. In your name, 